Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Data show that the percentage of children living with married parents is changing. In 1980, 77% of children in the U.S. lived with married parents. By 2019, it had fallen to 63%. In 2019, 84% of children whose mothers were college graduates lived with married parents. Only 60% of children whose mothers had less education did. What should we make of these trends? What's driving them? What impact does living in a two-parent household have on the educational outcomes of children? And should we even be talking about all of this? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Melissa Carney onto the podcast. Melissa Carney is the Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland and the director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. Her new book is The Two-Parent Privilege. Melissa Carney, welcome to The Report Card. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so the title of your book is The Two-Parent Privilege. What do you mean when you say the two-parent privilege? (laughs) I'm really referring to two facets of the issue at hand. One, the fact that having two parents in the home is a privileged or advantageous situation for kids. Shouldn't be that controversial, but it turns out to be a little bit so. And the second part of... um, You know, what I'm referring to is the fact that now having a two-parent home or raising your kids in a two-parent home is much more prevalent among college-educated adults, which is already a very privileged or advantaged group in society. So it's it's really both sort of who becomes, who who gets to live in a two-parent home, who raises their kid in a two-parent home, and then the advantages that that yields for children. This is a little bit of a taboo topic in 2023. Uh, is, Is that right? Yeah. And which is um, really, I think, why I felt like I had to write the book was because I've been in so many policy-focused conversations about inequality and class gaps over the past decade. And it's become increasingly clear to me that we're not really going to make progress closing class gaps or addressing inequality in the U.S. in a meaningful way if we don't acknowledge this really wide class gap in family structure. Um, And I felt like it was important to try and describe the issue and and put this issue forward in a way that's done with empathy and with data and hopefully remove it from the land of taboo and make it something that we readily talk about when we talk about ways to address class gaps or inequality. So why is it taboo, though? Because we talk about race all the time, right? And we talk about, you know, poverty and we talk about lots of things. I mean, you tell me, why is this one taboo where the where lots of other differences that also have to do with inequality don't seem to be quite so taboo? Yeah, I've I've tried I've <laughs> I've reflected on this a lot and I try to figure it out in some, you know, in some sense, I don't think it should be for the same reasons that you don't like. Look, we talk about all sorts of sources of inequality and family structure is one of them. And why can't we just be matter of fact about that? But I think that's the economist in me speaking. Right. Like in my mind. Why shouldn't this conversation be just like our conversation about, hey, people with college degrees do better in the labor market. They they do better when there's an economic downturn. How can we help people without college degrees achieve economic security and at the same time get more people to achieve college degrees? I want to have the same conversation. I think the reason why it's harder when we start talking about family structure or whether people are married and raising their kids in a married parent home It sounds like there's an element of choice 
I mean, I suppose there's also an element of choice in whether you go to college or not, but it feels more judgmental about whether you're married or raising your kids in that family structure. Again, I think part of the issue is that it sounds like there's choice, but really there are barriers to it, same way that there are barriers to people completing college. And so in my mind, we should be able to talk about it. Like, hey, are there barriers making it harder for certain people to achieve a two-parent household? Then when I say achieve a two-parent household, it sounds like I'm suggesting that one type of household is better than another. And and that, of course, makes people squeamish. We don't want to sound like we're saying one thing is better than another. But, you know, that's just a matter of the data. Well, On average, kids are advantaged. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that it could be taboo in part because there's real relationships at the heart of these things. Yeah. And there's people that belong to them. And they may well be defensive, especially when you say, well, you know, if you look at this data, it suggests that there's actually some downsides to this. We see it in the data. We... What happens if we ignore it? But there's taboos there, right? There, yeah. No, there are people involved in differences by education and differences in race, too, right? But this – so I, I think a, a big part of why this one feels particularly judgmental or raises sensitivities is because there's a history here. And so if we go back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan bringing this up in the in the 1960s as an Using issue. Using words like pathologies and so exactly, forth. Exactly, right? right? Yep. So what Daniel Patrick Moynihan was doing was raising attention to the fact that in the late 60s, we were starting to see differences between black and white families in the share of kids growing up in two-parent, married-parent homes. And he was calling attention to the decline in married-parent homes among black families, saying, hey, this this is a challenge. A lot of these black men are out of work. We should improve the economic opportunities of black men. But as you suggested, he also leaned into some pretty what certainly sounds now like pretty offensive language about pathologies. And then it sounds like you're blaming people for the situation they're in. You're blaming the victim. So that set the conversation back for a while. Then the topic came back up in the 80s when people started talking about the need for welfare reform, recognizing that now a majority of single moms on the welfare caseload in the in the U.S. were never married as opposed to widowed or right. um, the group that the program was originally created to serve. And there were a whole bunch of unfortunate, unfair stereotypes brought out there, the welfare queen. So, again, it sounds like, you know, people were blaming the victim. And so in an effort, I think, I'm you know, I'm ascribing good intentions to people who think we shouldn't talk about this. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to have the conversation again and say, let's do it again. We have to. It's, yeah. it's just too important not to. The numbers are so much bigger now than even when Daniel Patrick Moynihan drew attention to this. So yeah. so like when he said, hey, we have an issue here, nearly 30 percent of black kids were living with single moms and, you know, slightly under 5 percent of white kids. Now um, the numbers are 70 percent, 30 percent of black and white kids. So the numbers are really high now. Yeah, so, so we have to try and have this conversation again um, and let's do it avoiding harmful and unfair stereotypes or language that sounds like we're blaming victims or blaming people who find themselves in disadvantaged positions. And let's let's draw on the data and let's be honest about barriers and struggles that are leading to this. So I'm going to get to the numbers in just a second. Uh, this is an education podcast. We've got lots of sort of teachers and principals and folks in education. You're a professor, so you uh, teach this, but particularly for people who are in elementary and secondary ed. This is 
I mean, a fraught area for them to sort of talk about, think about and so forth, because they're much closer to these like relationships that we're talking about. Right. Uh, You know, just off the cuff. Do you have any advice for them on how do you talk about these things that are factors at play in the culture that they work in without getting drowned by the taboo sections of this? In no small part. The reason why I think it's important for those of us in the policy space to talk about this is because the deficits that children are bringing from their home life have now become the burden of teachers and schools. And so actually, one of the big points I make is we can't just keep asking teachers to recognize the traumas or, or you know, hardships kids are bringing from home. And in addition to all the other things they have to do to try and teach kids to make up for those gaps in home life. And I'm, you know, I, many teachers obviously do amazing work trying to make up for deficits. But that's part of my point is that this has now become the burden of schools, and we can't just keep piling on to schools, hoping that hiring school counselors uh, is going to make up for the absence of a second parent in the home. And so, you know, maybe maybe one of the things that this conversation will do is make teachers feel like they could say to their principals, to their districts, hey, I'm here to teach the kids. And I'm seeing that a lot of my kids are struggling for reasons that have nothing to do with school or education, you know. Somebody someplace needs to start bringing in parents. Somebody needs to be working with families that really needs to go hand in hand with what we're doing in the schools and with the requests we're making on our teachers. I have to say, you know, I have been getting uh, a lot of emails since the book came out a month ago now, a lot of emails from teachers and people in schools saying, thanks for saying this. I noticed this. But to your point, I can't really say anything about this. Yeah. But it's not surprising to me that teachers are saying they've noticed the effects of this in their classroom over the past 20 years. Yeah, I can imagine that there's a, um, you know, public policy professor privilege about being able to talk about these things in a more abstract way than people in schools can. So it's uh, there's definitely a different rub. There. I mean, let's be clear. There's plenty of people yelling about at me and saying mean things about of course, me. Of course. But I, yes. <laughs> so let me read off some of the numbers from your book to give uh, some of the context here, and, and then I'll follow a question. 2019, 63% of children in the U.S. lived with married parents, down from 77% in 1980. If you flip that, it's uh, 23% didn't live with married parents in 1980, 37% in 2019. Um, In 2019, 84% of children whose mothers had four years of college lived with married parents, down six points since 1980. Uh, 60% of children whose mothers had a high school degree or some college lived with married parents, Uh, a drop of 23 points since 1980. In 2019, 77% of white and 88% of Asian children lived with married parents. Um, For Hispanic children, it was 62%, uh, 38% for black children, a historically low share that reflects a downward trend over four decades. Uh, In 2020, the likelihood that an infant lived in a household that met the official government threshold of poverty was 46% for those living with an unmarried mother and 6% for infants living with a married couple household. Okay, there's clearly been an increase in the portion of children raised in single-parent households. What is driving this change? First of all, let's let's just pause on how striking that decline 
for the middle group is from six, you know, from 83% of kids of high school graduates to 60%. And the reason why I think it's so important to really pause on that is because I think in a lot of people's minds, single parenthood is still very much tied up with teen parents, high school dropouts, really disadvantaged groups. Part of what's so surprising about what happened in the past 40 years is that that disadvantageous household structure moved up into what we might think of as the middle class. And so now the group that really stands apart are college-educated adults. And that group has become, you know, much larger and more varied over time. So now 30% of moms have a college degree as compared to 11% in, in 1980. And yet still, married parent households are holding steady among that group. So this really is now affecting a really large share of the population and a large share of kids. And 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 if we go out 10 years and extrapolate from this, we're talking about like the modal kid or close to that, right, in America could be, you know, we're approaching 50%. Am I reading that right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the modal kid whose parents or the the typical kid whose parents don't have a college degree now. So now, you know, 52% of kids born to a mom without a college degree are born to unmarried parents. All right. And that's important because this and this gets to what's driving this. So just mechanically, let me talk about what this is coming from. Ultimately, what this reflects is a decoupling of the institution of marriage or a commitment to living, you know, cohabiting two people from having kids. So there's been a debundling of having kids and being married outside the college educated class. Why do I say this? This reflects an increase in the share of mothers who have never been married, not an increase in divorce. So divorce is actually down over the past 40 years. You know, one way to think about that is marriage has become less common. People have sort of set the bar really high for marriage, higher than having kids together. And so conditional on getting married, people are less likely to get divorced now. But conditional on having kids together, couples or adults who have a kid together are substantially less likely to be married than in the past. So, so, so to repeat yeah. this back, it's not a failure of marriages. It's a failure to marry yeah, that is right. driving this. That's right. That's right. So it's really people just, you know, a, a large increase in the share of kids born outside of marriage. Now, the second thing that's driving this is the fact that unmarried parents very rarely wind up living together in a stable cohabiting relationship. So that's another thing I think people have a misconception about or, you know, are overly sanguine about is, okay, who cares? Stop being so old-fashioned. People don't have to be married anymore. They just live together, except that they don't. (laughs) So only 8% of kids in the U.S. live with one of their biological parents and that parent's partner. Um, In the data, what we can see is, that in a majority of case, but not a very large majority, that's the uh, the child's second biological parent. But in 25 to 40 percent of cases, that partner is not the kid's second biological parent. So even among what I would consider a pretty small group, 8 percent of kids living with unmarried parents, that doesn't always mean two biological parents. Right. And then those are very Again, in the data, this is a data point I'm making, they're very fragile, unstable arrangements. So parents who are unmarried at the time of a child's birth, even in surveys where they say they want to be together, they're planning on being together, most of them are not by the 
the kid's like 12th birthday. So how does this, if you put it just sort of in rank order, and this, I'm I'm about to offend some people and be just absolutely simplistic, but just to get a sense of this, let's say that um, single parent families have particular challenges, and we can, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, and then you have two parent families who have less challenges and then are the sort of the small section of cohabitating parents that's somewhere in between there are the outcomes of those students sort of in between or do they tend to be closer to the single parent households just how do you rank those three sections so i drawn a lot of data uh, i mean a lot of studies that people have done looking at exactly this how do kids do from different you right. know configurations and and let's let's be clear we're just descriptively here. Sure. What do we see in the yep. data? Kids who were raised by two married biological parents have the best outcomes. Kids who are raised by a never married parent have inferior outcomes. And and what do I mean by this? I mean, they're more likely to get in trouble in school, less likely to graduate high school, less likely to graduate college, you know, uh, if, if they're from a never married versus a married parent. Um, less likely to be married or have high earnings themselves as adults. Those are the kind of markers right. I mean. Um, and then kids whose parents are cohabiting, they, again, you know, if they were cohabiting at birth, they tend to wind up looking more like the never married. Why? Because it's the kid's going to wind up spending many years with only one parent in their house. Kids whose parents were divorced are somewhere in the middle. And this all fits. I know, you know, hopefully we'll get there. If you just think about the resources that come with yep, households, yep. right? It's, we will get there. It, it like lines up. And then the next question is, what about kids whose Parents divorce, but they live with a parent who remarries. That's sort of between the never married and the married because you're making up some of the resources with the step parent. Right. So let's get into that a little bit. There seems to be a number of benefits of having two parents in a household. And the most obvious seems to be, um, and maybe it's not the most obvious, but financial benefits. Yeah. Uh, Describe the financial benefits. I mean, this is where it's like, again, this really shouldn't be taboo or controversial because what I'm saying is so obvious. Right. If you have two parents in the household, you have two adults who are contributing financial resources. I mean, a majority of moms work now. So it's not surprising that poverty rates are much lower among two-parent married as opposed to one-parent households. Some of that is selection. People who grow up in poverty are more likely to become single moms. But it's not just that. Even if you look at parents who are otherwise observationally equivalent, the same race, the same age live in the same state, same education level. If one is married and one is not, the married parent has more income coming into the household. And so we have all sorts of evidence that income is beneficial to kids. They, you know, why? Let's, again, let's just state the obvious. I can point to studies, but we know this intuitively. If you have more money, you can buy a home in a safer neighborhood in a better school district. You can buy higher quality, more nutritious food for your kid. You can also... Spend more money on kids' education, healthcare, enrichment activities. Money is very protective of kids. And it seems like here is where you could say, look, this isn't a personal deficit around single parents. There's just one earner, not two, right? Right. So you could have the exact same earning potential. Like, let's just hold constant earnings. If you're married, you're going to have more financial resources. Financial resources are associated with better student outcomes, better, better kid outcomes. It's pretty mechanical. Am I missing something? No, you're not missing something. But this is the game that social scientists like to play is we run a a regression and we try and control for things, right? So then we say, okay, let's control for income. And then we see that some of the 
difference in outcomes for kids from married and unmarried households goes away. Aha, told you it wasn't family structure. It's just income. But that is really nice in our regression where we hold all things equal and say, let's equalize income. But in the real world, we don't equalize income. And so, of course, that's part of the benefit. And the, the second thing I'll say about that is what I find ironic is that social scientists or people who don't want to uh, suggest that marriage is beneficial to kids. They'll say it's not. It's not that you're missing something unobserved in the data about the parents that make them different. Which let's say that in plain English. It's not the fact that there's a second parent in the household that makes it a beneficial situation for kids and all of the income and other things that the second household brings. It's something about married parents that, in a way unobserved to you in the data set, just makes them better parents. I mean. That sounds offensive. Like, yeah. oh, so now it is actually, right. even if there was a second parent. It's not the structure. It's the people. It's the people. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so I'm actually not inclined to think that, you know, moms who are single moms are, even if they had a second parent in their household, right. contributing all their resources, their kid would still be at a great disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. I can I, I can see that. And, you know, we, we're talking about that. There are other benefits as well, right? Fathers spend time with, with kids. And before I get into this with fathers... Let me ask this question. This can be fraught. So you talk, you know, you can talk about this antiseptically. Two-parent households, single-parent households. And then I'm going to trip up and say, well, yeah, but the dads can be around, which very quickly gets away from the two-parent. But again, to go back to the data, most of the single-parent households, vast majority, are female-headed. They're they're single mom households. 80% of one-parent households are single-mother households. But it's only 80%. I mean, I would I would have predicted it higher than that. No, no, eighty percent of one parent households are single mother households. Okay, so it's predominant, but it's not over. Um, that's pretty overwhelmingly if yeah. you're like, there, trying there, to get there elected. There are a but, large number yeah. of one parent dads. Okay. Yeah. All right. So forgive me, dads, if I if I blame it all on you. But if you're in a single parent family, yeah, um, you don't have two people to spend as much time with right. with the kids. So some of this is non financial. It's it's time. Um, it's, uh, man, it's gotta be spare headspace. I don't have spare headspace and I have a wonderful wife. Yes. Um, I have no idea how single parents do it. And I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table. I, I think parents that are married definitely are going to have an easier time. I recommend it wholly. Um, and I cannot imagine parenting well by myself. And my wife would tell you, no, he would not fare well and neither would the children. Right. Uh, just because... Parenting with two parents is exhausting. Yeah. Doing it with one is bananas. But what? just no, give but they, me a description of some of the, you know, non-material resources. Non-material resources. resources. Yeah. So, um, and I go through this in the in the book. So, and I, the way I sort of bucket things to just, you know, we're economists. We like to be parsimonious, yep. right? Yep. So, of course, households are super nuanced. Parents do a lot of things. I basically bucket into income, time, and your headspace is I refer to as emotional bandwidth or energy, yeah. right? So we already talked a bit about income. Let me just say, too, on the income thing, let's talk about spending. One of the things that's happened over the past 40 years is we've seen higher income households really pull away from everyone else in terms of just how much money they spend on kids 
activities and kids enrichment activities. And the reason why that's relevant to this whole conversation about class gaps and family structure and kids' outcomes is because spending on kids, on their activities, on their tutors, on all this other stuff is yet another way that this really privileged class is pulling apart from everybody else. And it takes two parents really in a household to get to the top end of the income distribution. Again, in general, on average. Okay. We also see in the data that more educated and married parents spend more time with their kid. And that's both true at an individual level, but then, of course, when you combine two people. So what do I mean on an individual level? I mean married moms spend more time with their kids than unmarried moms, even you know, within the same Just education like a group. Comparison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, why? Because you have another person who could do all this stuff, right? right. If you're if you if there's another person in the household who can pick up extra hours at work, who could mow the lawn, who could drive a kid around, who could prepare a meal. You have more time to talk to your kid, to sit and read to your kid, to help your kid with the homework. And then, of course, you multiply that by two because married parent households have two parents. Those kids are getting more parental time investment. And I do call it an investment because we have evidence that parental time with kids, especially spent in what development psychologists would call developmentally appropriate ways at different ages, that improves kids' outcomes. Again, we're not impugning single moms here. It's not that, you know, I actually reject the proposition that married parents fundamentally want different things for their kids or are more likely to know that reading to your young child is beneficial. They just have more time to do it in a very related way. They have more emotional bandwidth and more energy. So here I draw on evidence, mostly from outside economics, showing that single mother households are more likely to be burdened with toxic stress you know, or I'll lean into what behavioral economists refer to as limited cognitive bandwidth. Here's how you think about this at a very intuitive level. You get home from work, you're tired, you're stressed, you're the only parent around who now has to make dinner while you've got kids who need to be driven to their activities or need help with their homework or just misbehaving. And you don't have anyone else to say, can you deal with the kid while I take care of this? Or can you deal with kid one while I deal with kid two? Yeah, the ability to parent is greatly helped by being able to tap out every once in a while. Yes. Just be like, you you go in. I can't take him right now. Right. And to not be able to do that, to always be on stage, is an incredible burden. And I realize that, again, I, I realize this, you know, makes some people bristle. But I'm saying this from a point of empathy. And it's not just my experience in policy conversations that made me realize this was really important and something we had to talk about. But as a mom, to your point, I can't imagine doing this alone. And I have a ton of resources. So from, frankly, a feminist perspective or an interest in equity, we should be really concerned about the millions of women and, yes, the millions of dads who are finding themselves doing this by themselves. This is not this is not an easy thing to be doing. Yeah. So let me up the stakes here a little bit and I'll I'll take this on. But um, look, the insulation around keeping this taboo and not talking about family structure and its influence on kids and it as a particular challenge for the people living with it seems to me to be unjust in a sense, because we have a lot of people that the data show are from highly educated, wealthy levels that overwhelmingly live out the practices that they will not preach. They will not preach what they practice. They say, oh, well, you don't want to say that to poor single moms. But of course, I'm going to make sure that 
my kids understand that there are serious benefits to a two-parent family. Am, am I off base? Am I just curmudgeonly? No, I, I think that's right um, in the sense that, and I'm just feeling it right now with the reaction to the book, I get some very well-heeled <laughs> married <laughs> feminists who think that I shouldn't be saying this. But then when I talk to lower-income single moms or the folks who run community groups working with vulnerable families, I'm just I'm just reflecting their reality. Yeah. And they are too busy dealing with the hardships of their day-to-day life to have the luxury to sit back and write essays about this, right? And so, of course, I recognize that there are exceptions. There are many children as single mothers of single fathers who have gone on to do great things. And there are many children of two-parent households who have hit a lot of hardships and don't graduate college. But in general, two-parent households have, you know, higher odds of delivering more benefits and resources to their kids. And and again, it's, you know, that's like just a reflection of reality. I think the more interesting question then, because it's really undeniable, is, yeah, sure, a lot of single moms, of course they'd rather have a partner. But where is that great, reliable, second committed co-parent? Right. And that that's where things get really hard when we try to think about, okay, now what do we do about this? Yeah. We are willing to recognize that this is a disadvantageous position. We're, we're you know, keen to acknowledge that it's more common among the people who are in some sense, less economically in positioned to, you know, to adapt for this or to adjust for it. And so then what do we do? Why are so many people finding themselves, so many people outside the college-educated class, finding themselves parenting children with no other partner in the household? Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think that, uh, again, single moms is kind of the default position in most people's heads. And so... There's a little bit of the way the sort of stigma or the blame that's implicit in that accrues to moms for some reasons who are the ones yeah, who they're, are they're the ones doing, they're doing it. the work. They're doing it. They're the kids. It seems crazy. You know, and shout out to the single dads too. They're their kids' greatest asset. Right. And so, look, I very explicitly say bringing back high levels of stigma is not the answer here. But to the extent anyone's looking to point fingers at blame, it's not the parent who's there sticking around. Yeah. Where's the absent parent? But even there, I'm 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 hesitant. Like I never use the term anywhere in the book "deadbeat dads," right? Because there are also situations. Look, this is a really large group of people now. Forty percent of kids in the U.S. are born to unmarried parents. So no one situation describes all of those situations. So there are plenty of situations where, um, you know, a parent takes off. Typically, the dad takes off. And and the mom is left to do this by herself. But we also read ethnographic accounts of situations where the dad wants to be involved and the mom doesn't let him or the mom gets a new boyfriend and then doesn't let the yeah. first child's dad be part of the sure. child's life. And so it's complicated and it's messy and whole scale. I don't think any one group is necessarily to blame or one group is necessarily to is victimized. It's just complicated and messy. And I can only imagine that a big part of this is just inconvenience. So even if you enter into, a, you know, you get you get divorced or you don't get married because, you know what, it wasn't going to work. Right. But you're both very committed. The, 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 the husband and the wife, 
very committed to the child, but it's just inconvenient if you don't live in the same house yeah. to bring the same resources together. So it, it doesn't even have to be some sort of, you know, huge differential. If the inconvenience is the difference maker, it's still going to make a difference for the kids in those families. Am, am I off base there? There's also... Um... You know, this is outside really of my of my focus because I actually try very hard to just stick with the big trends that yep. are driving this. But there are studies about, you know, the complicated nature of when the parents aren't together and then they wind up partnering with other people and have other kids. It becomes more than just an inconvenience. Right. Now you have multiple families. Yeah. And of course, your first family or those kids are right. going to be given some short shrift at right. least on your time. Um, but we do know like – Parents, kids whose parents were never married, they are much less likely over their childhood to be receiving any child support from the second parent, and they're less likely to have any engagement with the second parent. So, you know, mostly I think people's instincts about this, at least that I've heard, are right in the sense that the more parents do to essentially replicate what a married household would look like in terms of, no, 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 we work really hard to co-parent. We both contribute a ton. Right. We're, we're both there driving the kids to their activities. Then the kids are going to suffer less, yep. right? The problem now is we have millions of kids growing up outside a two-parent household where they're not being showered with the resources of two parents. Yep. So um... – well, this is an education podcast. I, you know, we, we focus on education. Your book is not on education uh, specifically, but let me ask about the the role of having two parents in boosting educational outcomes. Uh, first of all, how big of a difference are we talking about here? I mean, is it is it a, a minor difference? No, compared it's, to it's, I mean, how big? Okay, is it? so this is actually really interesting because this moves a so. Sorry, I'm going to be like a little bit of a professor for a second. In the 80s and 90s, most of the studies of single mother households and their kids' outcomes really focused on keeping kids out of poverty, right? Single moms now are less disadvantaged in the past. So even though rates of poverty among single mother households are five times higher than rates among married parent households, most single mother households don't live in poverty, right? right? Three quarters don't live in poverty. And most kids of single mothers do graduate high school. Okay. The reason I'm starting there and emphasizing that point is because a lot of people hear this topic and think, yes, we need a stronger safety net. Okay. We're not just talking about primary outcomes anymore. Most kids of single moms stay out of poverty, graduate high school. Right. Actually, now the biggest gap in educational outcomes for kids from married and unmarried homes is whether they graduate college. So this actually shifts the conversation a bit because graduating college is a really big marker of economic success. It's still pretty hard to get your kid through college, all the way a four-year degree. And so actually, even if you just look at – if you look at kids born – kids living with unmarried versus married mothers, for moms who have a high school degree, have some college, or have a college degree – right, so more educational disadvantage, kids whose parents are married are twice as likely to graduate high school, graduate college. So that's a big gap. Yeah. And and I want to point that out because I don't think people think enough about the relationship between family structure and these really hard-to-achieve outcomes like graduating college. Um, and so that's where we see, you know, essentially it's not until you have the kids of two married college-educated parents do you get a majority of them with a four-year degree by age 25. So the gaps are large. 
if we want to talk more specifically about what we see in K through 12 schools, there's just, you know, so many studies now showing that um, kids coming from, and most of it, the literature does look at single mother homes, they're more likely to get in trouble in school. They're more likely to get suspended. And we have really nice work. Well, it's depressing work, but it's very well done showing that boys are particularly disadvantaged. Right. So I'm thinking of work here by Marianne Bertrand and Jessica Pan and work by David Arter and David Figlio and a team of researchers that shows that the gender gap in kids' school behaviors and outcomes, which now favors girls, as of course you and your listeners will know, um, that gap is greater for kids coming from single mother homes as compared to mother parent, uh, married parent homes, suggesting that boys are particularly disadvantaged by the absence of a dad from their house. And that makes them, you know, increasingly likely to go to school and act out and do the kinds of things that are going to get them in trouble, get them suspended, keep them ultimately from graduating and achieving higher levels of education. So so the effects of uh, single parent households on boys are dramatically larger than for girls. I mean, I don't I don't know if you'd say dramatically, depending on how you look at these things, but meaningfully. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. OK, Melissa, it's time for grade it. OK, I'm like nervous. Let's start out with uh, universal basic income for parents. Oh, you threw me a curveball because I don't like universal basic income for parents. I will give this one depending. I, I'm feeling like a generous grader. So I'm going to give it a B. If I were cranky, I'd give it a C plus, B minus. Why? Okay. Because I like the idea of a parental allowance in this country or a universal basic income from, from parents. So this is why I'm a, I'm a pretty hard grader. I'm in the economics department. Fair enough. Okay. Um, I like that idea. We have mounds of evidence that alleviating the material needs of kids from low-income homes yields large benefits for the kids and large social returns. What do I mean? They, they're they they're healthier. They're better in school. Ultimately, they have higher earnings, less reliant on government programs. So income assistance to low-income kids, we should totally have more of it. The reason why I keep this out of the A grade range is because I tend to favor targeted government investments and spending. Um, maybe you've noticed we have a deficit debt problem. So I'm all for readjusting the federal budget and prioritizing our spending. And so sending checks to parents, you know, making $300,000, $400,000 is not a great use of money. Now, the cynic in me is like, well, we waste lots of money. We send Social Security checks to elderly making, you know, that have right. high wealth. So on the things we could waste our money on, this doesn't bother me as much as others, but it's it's not a great use of funds. All right. The stock of marriageable husbands in 2023. I'm grading them. Yeah, no, just grade the stock. I mean, is it is it low? Is it is it high? I How think would you it... grade it? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Um, C plus. What's the what's the major uh, reasons that you would give a, a pretty tough grade? Right, C plus. Fifteen percent of prime age men are not working. I okay. mean, you have colleagues here at yep. AEI who have written about it. Indeed. What are these guys doing, right? right. So I'm I, my C plus is I'm sympathetic to the. I would not want to be out there on the dating market, especially if I were mostly focused on non college educated men. Um, Fair enough. 
um, adding the success sequence to middle school or high school public school curricula. Shout out to ENRO. I'm going to give that an A. Okay. And that the success sequence is teaching students that the the percentage of folks who graduate from high school, get a job, get married, and then have children, if they're going to do those things in that order, are dramatically less likely to be in poverty. Why do you give it an A? Well, I give it an A. Look, this is, first of all, let's talk about my fiscal responsibility here. This is not a very expensive thing to do. And I think talking to kids about the challenges in life and the ways to set themselves up for success in life is something we should be doing more of. You know, again, look, we have mounds of data. This is in the kids' interest and they should know this. Why is every school that doesn't teach sex ed also teaching, hey, let's have healthy relationships and let's be honest about this success sequence? Uh, the Maternal, Infant, and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program. This is a really hard part of the show. Um, a minus. Why the minus? It sounds so great. Well, when I'm in the economics department, I'm very stingy with my A's. Um, it is great. There are, you know, and I've looked at the studies of them. Uh, they have room for improvement. Um, the reason I'm in the A range, which, again, that's a lot for me. Right? Yeah, that's good. The A range is because this is exactly the kind of thing we should be doing, which is giving support to vulnerable families at this critical moment in time. Um, you know, there's there's room for improvement. These these programs don't improve outcomes across the board as much as they think we'd like to. So let's keep let's keep working on them and and really get them to the A range. Okay, we've talked about single family and two parent homes. How about multi generational households? Oh, so this is I, I'm going to lose some credibility, but of course, as soon as you say it, I'm like A plus because I grew up in an Italian American home with my grandma, and okay. that was like amazing. All right. Um. But then I think about one of my parents living with us, and I'm like, Ugh. so, <laughs> <laughs> so oh. I'm, I'm going to abstain. I'm going to. I'm not going to really grade it, but I'll just admit that I loved growing up with my grandma in my house. All right, two more. The stigma of out of wedlock births. The stigma associated with it. Okay, I'm going to give that um, a D, because. With all due respect to your AI colleague, I hated so much that campaign on the subway system in New York that had pictures of babies crying, telling their teen mother that they basically screwed up their life, as if the problem with teen mothers was that they were overly confident and they needed us to make them feel bad about themselves. So stigmatizing people who find themselves in really bad situations is not what we should be doing. How about the stigma of studying... Um family structure in the social sciences. I'm going to give that one an F. Okay, okay. <laughs> I knew I could find one with a lower grade. All right. Thanks for playing. That's pretty good. We got from F to A. That's right. The full range. Hardly anyone can uh, can do that. Let me ask a, a quick question to pick this back up about, um, about the resources and the relationship to outcomes. So if this is a resource argument, then... I would think, well, you have a set of resources, and so let's – I don't care if it's two parents or single parents. You would have dwindling resources the more kids you have. So if you have six kids in a two-parent household, do those kids have diminished returns in the same areas that, you know – a kid where they only have one brother, uh, brother yeah. or sister or only one sibling? or I, In other words, yeah. is there some connection between the resources 
that two parent households might have and the number of these. yeah this is this is interesting to be to be clear this is not something I delve into in my book I'm I don't say anything about the number of kids or even I don't even say anything about sort of how parents make it work in terms of whether one stays home with the kids or works but there are papers that look at this and show that you know in economics. The more kids you have, the lower is the level of educational completion. And and I can't remember exactly how large it is, but your intuition follows through. You'd be able to find regression results suggesting that. Right. Girls are less likely to complete higher levels of education if they have more brothers, showing sort of a shifting of resources to boys. Um, and then there's also work showing that if a family has multiple girls, the dad is more likely to leave. Isn't that so sad? That is sad. I know. And like, shout out to my dad. He had four girls. I didn't give him much agita, but I think my little sisters drove him I'm sure crazy. they did. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you about some sort of exceptions to the rules. So why do Asian Americans, even those who are not college educated, seem to be relatively immune from the trends you're describing in the book? Super interesting. I didn't know this before I did the data work for the book. I'm sure there are people who are are, are more familiar with trends in Asian American culture who knew this already. But there isn't a college gap in family structure among Asian American families. So really high rates. Basically, everyone's above 80 percent, give or take, in, two, in the prevalence of two parent households, married parent households among Asian families, regardless of education level. Sort of amazing. The first thing I looked at was, is it because over this 40-year period, while non-college educated men, you know, didn't do so well economically, non-college educated Asian men still did well? The answer is no. So in <laughs> social science speak, basically Asian Americans are off the regression line. They're just getting married and having their kids in married parent homes at higher rates across the education distribution. That leaves me with, you know, a not obvious economic uh, explanation, and I suspect it has something to do with really tight social norms or conventions among that population toward married parent homes. Okay. One more on this in this thread. Is this, this set of trends that we're seeing in the U.S. an international thing, or is this a U.S. thing? Children in the U.S. have the unfortunate distinction of being more likely than any than kids in any other country with data to live in a one-parent home. So the Pew Research Center surveyed 130 countries. By their methodology, 23% of U.S. kids lived in a one-parent home. The average in all of the other countries was 7%. So U.S. kids are especially likely. Close second now is U.K., when I've looked at the data for what's going on in other high-income countries, what you see is that over this same 40-year period, there has been an increase in kids living in one-parent homes, and that increase, much like in the U.S., has happened generally outside the most educated group of adults. So um, you're an economist. What economically is driving the decline in two-parent households? I'm pretty convinced by the evidence that the decline in non-college educated men's economic position over the past 40 years, and I mean that in both an absolute sense and relative to women, that has contributed to this move away from marriage. Um, we certainly see a correspondence of trends. So what do I mean by that? I mean, 
Over the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, we saw college-educated workers, both men and women, do really well in the labor market. Employment rates stayed high. Earnings increased by large amounts. Marriage was sustained. The kids, share of kids living in married parent homes barely declined. Outside the college-educated class, we saw the employment of prime-age adults, especially men, decrease. We saw their earnings basically stagnate. We saw the earnings of women relative to men, again, among adults without a four-year college degree, increase, and we saw marriage rates decline. We also have, in our body of evidence, some really compelling causal analysis showing that factors that led to a weakening of men's economic position led to a decrease in marriage and an increase in the share of kids living in single mother homes. Two specific examples, in the early 2000s, when there was increased import competition from China, certain communities were especially likely to lose manufacturing jobs as a result. Those were jobs that provided a really nice sort of family-sustaining wage for men without a college degree. In communities impacted by that economic shock, you saw as a result of that shock a reduction in marriage and an increase in kids living in single-parent homes and a corresponding reduction in kids living in poverty. Similarly, the adoption of industrial robots over these decades meant that certain you know, industrial jobs that used to pay a nice middle-class job to men without college degree, those jobs were lost in those communities affected by that shock, a different shock, different communities, same sort of outcomes. So, so there is a causal link being drawn here. I don't want to overstate the case because I don't mean to say it's just technological change or globalization that's right. led to this. Those are, I think those economic shocks you know, we're one of the precipitating events or contributing events. And then what happens is there's a new social convention. And and in my own work, looking at the fracking boom, which was a an increase in the employment right. and uh, earnings of non-college educated And so fracking, men. all these guys moved to North Dakota. They made a lot more money. No, than but they, okay. But I right? actually, we don't actually look at them because okay. those guys who moved to North Dakota, that was weird. You've gotcha. got a bunch of migrants. Right. You've got a bunch of men living in trailers. Right. Actually, we look at everywhere outside of North Dakota and South Dakota. You've got fracking booms, you know, fracking towns, think Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado. And now fracking jobs come in. There's like a mini economic boom. So it's not just fracking jobs come in. You also have like more restaurants, more retail. Great. Non-college educated men see their employment go up, their earnings increase, both absolute relative to women. Aha, you do see people have more kids. Because I'm an economist, we actually know, we have studies showing that kids are normal goods. When people get extra money, one of the things they spend it on is having kids. But no increase in marriage, no change in the non-marital birth share. In places where more people were already having their kid outside marriage, the increase in non-marital births was greater, suggesting that there's a link here between the social conventions of a place and how people respond to economic shocks. So I really think we're in this sort of vicious cycle where economic and social conditions amplify each other. Yeah. Uh, You say this in the book. I'm going to read it and ask you to unpack it. Increased rates of marriage among unmarried parents might be beneficial to children in some instances, but likely not all. If the mothers who are not married are not married precisely because the men with whom they have fathered children would not meaningfully contribute positive resources to the raising of their children, then the observed marriage gap in children's outcomes is not a good approximation for what their children would gain from parental marriage. Help me unpack that. Okay. What that means is 
we can't just look at the outcomes for kids whose parents are married and said, hey, if we take all of these unmarried parents and made them, you know, waved a magic wand and got them to be married, their kids would do as well as the married parents. Why? Because if one of the reasons that those parents aren't married is because the men are out of work or incarcerated or violent, then having that second parent in the household might not be very beneficial and might actually be detrimental. So to put that otherwise, they may not be married because the guy's a jerk. And the kids might not be better off if the marriage was between a good mom and a jerk. Yeah, exactly. A jerk or even like an out-of-work jerk. yeah. Right? And so then what we have to do is say, okay, let's think about the fact that 25% of kids now are growing up, you know, without a second parent in the house. Are all of those parents really detrimental to their kid? Right. Probably not. Right. And so the easy cases are the ones where it's like, well— you know what? The parents are both great people. They both love the kid. They both are financially stable. Neither one of them are dealing with um, any sort of deep struggles. And maybe they're just like sort of agnostic about whether they stay together or try this because they're not wildly in love. That's one where if we change our social norms a bit, it's like, hey, you guys had a kid together. Gotcha. Give this a try. Right. Learn to love each other. Right. Uh, Figure it out for the sake of the kid. That's the easy case. How many of... The 25% fall into that category? I don't know. Um, probably not zero. Probably not all of them. And then you take the cases but, where- But hold on a second. But if if that solution was for half of them, you'd make a huge dent in this problem. I think that's right? probably right. Okay. Yes, exactly. And then you've got the ones where in surveys, they say, yeah, we want to make this work. We know our kid would benefit. Um, but he has a substance abuse problem. She has anger issues. And guess what? We can't afford the high-income couples therapy that you rich people are going to to make your relationship work. Why do we not have a commitment to public funding of strengthening families or relationship education programs for families like that? Here's where I got impatient with some of the people who think, this is terrible. Stop talking about marriage and let's go back to talking about schools. Let's just hire more school counselors. You have a lot of unmarried couples who would like to make it work and, and they have real barriers. Shouldn't we all be committed to helping them? Shouldn't that be part of our push for for equity, right, for improved well-being? And so, so that's another meaningful share of the population. And then, of course, there will be some share where, you know, the, the parent is violent or um, criminally involved. And there we're going to have to recognize, hey, we're going to have to really bolster the resources of the one-parent family because the second parent isn't going to do it. Right. So there's some cultural elements of this, it's sort of implicit in all that or explicit. One component of the cultural element seems to be that people, and especially folks in some demographic groups, no longer think marriage is essential for having and raising kids. And you write, the changing family structure of U.S. children reflects a reduction in the incidence of marriage and a decoupling of marriage from the experience of having and raising children, not an increase in birth rates among demographic groups with historically high rates of single motherhood. So culturally, what do you think might be the cause of this decoupling? The major cultural and social changes really happened in the 60s and 70s. And and there, you know, there was a change in expectations about gender norms. There was a change in expectations about 
whether you needed to be married to have kids. And we saw a similar decline among all groups. And then in the 80s and 90s, we really saw things diverge by education class. And so I think it raises a lot of interesting questions as to why the convention of raising your kid in a two-parent married parent home is still so high among the college-educated class, and it's fallen outside the class. This gets back to something you said earlier, which is it seems like a lot of sort of well-off commentators on this are not really being honest, (laughs) and they're not sort of preaching what they practice. Um, You know, a more generous interpretation would be that changes in, let's say, what we see on TV, what Hollywood shows us is well-intentioned in trying to be inclusive of all different family types. I would say it's probably not an accurate reflection of the fact that some of these really complicated family types are probably more um, under-resourced and fraught than the media indicates. Um, And so it's all sorts of things. I also... Another interesting question about this, I think, let's be very specific. President Obama gave a really remarkable Father's Day speech in 2008, where he very, very explicitly said that it was a problem that so many dads were absent from homes. He gave that speech once, didn't really raise the issue again. I have a hard time thinking that President Biden or any progressive Democrat would get up and make that speech today. And so, you know, this is really probably the most controversial position I take in the book, which is I think that's a mistake. I think it's not fair to the kids to to not call this out as a major social issue um, and expect that our national leaders, our local leaders were just more honest about this and really promoted the two-parent family expectation for for kids. So one set of leaders that I think uh, that you don't talk too much about in the book but might address this would be religious leaders, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. this is yeah. – the Venn diagram between this topic and religious talk is, is large. Um, what role do you think the decline in religiosity in America plays with this? I can only speculate on this because it's – you know, certainly the trends line up. Right. I just really don't know of – good causal evidence showing that religiosity declined for some external reason, and that has contributed to this. We just know that a lot of these things are related, people not getting married, people being less likely to go to church, even people you know, struggling with substance abuse issues. These things are all sort of related and, and accentuate each other. Right. Um, I just, I'm not, I don't have a very good sense of how strong the causal arrows one run in one direction versus another on this point in particular. So um, the two parent privilege is the book. Again, we'll we'll link to it. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and I don't want to talk about all the problems without talking at least a little bit about the solutions. What do you think is you know like top line fixes? Where where do okay. they come from? What do you what are you calling? I, I'm going to start with the the. The biggest, most hardest to accomplish and then get more specific, okay? okay? So first, to actually really change things in a meaningful way, I think two things have to happen. We've already talked about the fact that I think we need to really restore um, a social norm of two-parent households for kids. Hand in hand with that, we really do need to 
double down on our efforts to improve the economic position of non-college educated men in particular, increase the economic attractiveness of non-college educated men as financial partners to women in a household. Okay, so I think those two things, the economics and the social norms need to go hand in hand. At a more micro immediate level, we should be doing so much more as in terms of public investment, community groups, research community to implement, study, and invest in programs aimed at strengthening families. We have not done this because we're very uncomfortable with this idea of like working in the family sphere. So think about how much effort we have, how much research policy focus there is on improving schools. And we experiment with all sorts of things. Some work, some doesn't. But we keep throwing money at schools and we keep trying to improve it. We had in the early 2000s, the Bush administration ran some pro-marriage initiatives didn't meaningfully increase rates of marriage among families. And so then everyone poo-poos it, and we go back to talking about schools. We should be doubling down. We have basically very, very minuscule, in both an absolute and relative sense, funding available. I don't think there's any federal agency that actually funds research on how to strengthen families Mm -hmm. or promote healthy relationships. We need to be investing in that space, meeting families where they are, figuring out what barriers they face to having stable two-parent homes, healthy marriages, for the like not in some sort of value sense, wagging our finger. You want to co-parent together. How come you can't? What are all the barriers? Financial instability, criminal backgrounds make it hard, substance abuse. Here are the programs, right? And we'll figure it out and and we invest in families. Uh last question on here. These are policy responses. My my gut take here is that this is a cultural fight and you're, you know, you're bringing a policy knife to a cultural gunfight. It's just, man, really hard to change things. And I say frequently, right, like uh, culture eats policy for breakfast every yes, day. Yes. So uh, just to comment on that, like how hard is this? I, I actually – Like this, (laughs) in some sense, this whole exercise was uh, one of humility for me as an economist in the sense it was actually here at AI um, many years ago now. Well, not I mean, eight years ago, I was asked to discuss one of the early papers by the Chetty et al. team on social mobility. And when I looked at their figures and results, the thing that jumped out at me the most was all the economic policy levers had very little predictive power of rates of upward mobility from a neighborhood. What do I mean? EITC exposure, college tuition, the number of colleges per capita, none of that really described neighborhood levels of upward mobility. Single biggest predictor of whether kids from a neighborhood moved up in the income distribution was the share of homes headed by married parents. And I looked at that, I was like, crap, it's all culture. And I even said that, I was like, put it in quotes, it's all culture. What are we going to do about this? And then um, basically that's what I've been thinking about for the past eight years. And I've become increasingly convinced when you look at the evidence, you're right, it's culture. And so we can't just keep having the same policy conversations about addressing class gaps, addressing inequality, talking about the EITC, talking about improving schools. I'm all for those things. That's what I've spent my career mostly talking about. And now we have to sort of put this out there and say, what can we do to strengthen families, to close crass gaps in family structures? There are some policy tinkering we can do. Let's remove the marriage disincentives from the tax code and income 
transfer programs, okay? There's some policy tinkering. At the end of the day, I agree with you that the solution to this problem is not going to be really in the tax code or in the design of our transfer programs. It really has to be a much broader, multifaceted approach espoused by community leaders and the media and family themselves. And you wrote a book about it, The Two-Parent Privilege. Uh, Melissa Carney, thanks for coming on The Report Card to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Melissa Carney. We'll include a link to The Two-Parent Privilege and some of Melissa's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.